Dave from New Jersey, it's the SNL Nerd, the show where two comics from New Jersey nerd out about Saturday Night Live. I'm your co-host, John Trumbull. And I'm your co-host, Darren Patterson. Darren, I nearly called myself your name. I don't know why <laughs> I did that. <laughs> wow. Dude, wow. This uh, this lockdown has really affected your brain. Apparently. It really it really has. It really has. I, um, we are here. We're doing a special bonus episode because we've got... A very special guest. We've got an SNL writer on the show, a bona fide SNL writer. We've got Mr. Hugh Fink on the show. Is it now the point where I can say hello? Yes, yes. Please say <laughs> hello, Hugh Fink. Hugh <laughs> Fink. Hello, John. Hello, Darren. Um, this is quite an honor. Oh, well, we are honored to have you, sir. Now, just to give people like a primer on you, you wrote for SNL for seven seasons from season 20 in 1995 to season, or no, excuse me, season 21 in 1995 to season 27 in 2002. And you've, you've, go ahead. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And you, you've also, you've appeared on the late show with David Letterman late night with Conan O'Brien. You've had a half hour special on comedy central. You created the Showbiz Show with David Spade. You wrote for the Drew Carey Show. You wrote for Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. You've written for the Muppets. Wow. All true. And, uh, of course, the hardest people to work with of all those people you just said was the Muppets. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you've got one up on Michael O'Donohue because you do write for Felt. Not that <laughs> O'Donohue would have had a heart attack if he had to deal with the Muppets like I did. <laughs> Are there big divas in the Muppets? There are. And I'm not kidding you guys. There was this thing where I wrote the script, I co-wrote the script with these two young writers who I recruited, um, who were Muppets fans. And uh, the script was approved by Disney because, you know, Disney owns the Muppets. So they were the executive producers. So we're at the table read in New York before we start shooting this movie. And um, the guy who plays Kermit found me and said, hey, I have to tell you, you know, Kermit would never say this. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty diva-ish. Mm. Was this the so, guy that was, like, feuding with the Henson family? Yes, that, that is the guy. That's the Kermit they fired. That's the Kermit they fired. Yeah. It's yeah, funny you know about that. He actually was a nice fellow once we got past that issue, but a little weird that he talked about Kermit in the third person. And to try to use that BS of saying Kermit wouldn't say that, of course, made me this felt like an episode of the Twilight Zone what? for me to go. You mean you wouldn't say it because you are Kermit, you're a human being who's an actor. Kermit is a friggin' puppet that's stuffed with with foam. You do realize that. Sir. The the sock at the end of my arm has some issues with the script. Exactly. Wow, that that is funny. <laughs> yeah, but that, they were all, I'd say all the guys who I say guys because they literally were all men. There were uh-huh. no women. They're all kind of quirky and possessive and territorial about their precious Muppet voices. Uh huh. Mm, and they all wanted to, in a sense, chime in creatively, but that's the equivalent of. If you're making a feature film with live actors, what necessarily qualifies actors to be re- rewriting a script? 
Right? Yeah. Some of them have no ability to write. Right. So right. It was challenging. Hmm. Interesting. Wow, that's fantastic. All right, so um, so when uh, Trumbull mentioned that you were going to be on the on a on our podcast, I uh, I actually got really excited because, um, you know, as, as we know, we are we are SNL nerds, but we're also stand up comedy nerds. Like we're big, huge fans of stand up comedy. And I remember uh, seeing you way back in the day when um, I used to watch things like um, like the A List on Comedy Central and. VH1 stand-up spotlight and uh, seeing your stand-up and uh, you know of course you were on Letterman and everything and I, I was I was I was uh, I've been a huge fan of your of your work from back in the day. I appreciate that, Darren. Since you did mention VH1 spotlight, I'll always remember that the night I did my taping here in Los Angeles was the right. night of the O.J. Simpson's Bronco chase. <laughs> wow. World. So I was sitting in the green room before my set, watching the live coverage. Of OJ's Bronco going down the 405. Wow! <laughs> Holy cow! The audience at the taping wasn't aware of it. Yeah, they were just you know, in the crowd, waiting for a good comedy show. But those of us who were off stage were freaking out. Oh wow! I, uh, I remember <laughs> I did like uh, a, a Sunday night set at at one of the local places. We we've done stand up here in New Jersey. At, uh, at Tierney's, and then when I got off stage, this was a few years ago, uh, it, it was the night that they got Bin Laden. <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, that's that's memorable. <laughs> okay. How can I work this in the act? The, the Navy SEALs, after they got him, they turned apparently to their commander and said, by the way, if there's time, you know, you can catch John Trumbull doing his set. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They were like, yeah, we can, we can fly back in time. <laughs> Yeah, right. We're, we're going to go to Montclair in New Jersey and, <laughs> and, and catch this. Yeah, and then and then and then hit Ray's afterwards <laughs> for dinner. I I used to have a line in my act about like that I performed on the night they they got Bin Laden, and I think I also performed by coincidence the night that uh, Saddam Hussein died or something like that. So I, I was doing a thing about like my comedy was killing evildoers. Nice. <laughs> so it's but, a superpower. Exactly. Exactly. If only I could. If only I could just harness this power in a, in a more productive way. So, Hugh, how did you? Did you start out as a stand-up? Did you start out as a writer? What was? How did you get into I comedy? I started off as a stand-up. Okay. Yes. I was at NYU, uh, and the comedy scene in New York City was starting to blossom. Mm-hmm. I loved going to comedy clubs, and sort of got inspired by watching comedians on TV, but also friends at NYU saying, you should do this. You you could do it. So I wrote original material and in a limited way, went up in some legit clubs while I was in college. And then I moved to Los Angeles to pursue it professionally. Okay. So you started young. You, you were like still I in college. really young. I did. All right. right. College. Wow. That's great. I, I wish I had started younger. I didn't start comedy until like my thirties, which I've, I've heard other comics say like, Oh yeah, that's too late. But mm. yeah. Even there's exceptions. Uh-huh. Rodney Dangerfield was an aluminum sighting salesman into his, well into his forties mm-hmm. while he was dabbling in standup, but he started really late. So I think that, Hey, if you have a passion for it and you're getting laughs, then it's never too late. Yeah. 
like I know, like also Lewis Black started pretty late, and you know people say that about uh, Phyllis Diller as well. So it's uh, mm-hmm. yes, you start you that's start when you start. That's true. Yeah, okay. and I remember so, like I, you, like you also wrote for Last Comic Standing. I remember in one of the early seasons there was like a grandmother who came on who was just starting stand up, and she had to be in her like her seventies at least. That rings a bell. I don't remember her name, but yeah, yeah. The best thing on the on the season I did last comic Sandy, it was the year that JD Smooth hosted. Oh remember? sure, yeah. And there was a the, when they eliminated it down to like the final eight comics, we did a roast of Gilbert Gottfried, where the eight remaining young comedians had to write roast jokes about Gilbert. Well, I got as part of my job to write all of Gilbert's jokes about the young comics. Oh, nice. Um, it was so fun because I just got to be so vicious and no holds barred. And of course, Gilbert is great. He was willing to do anything. Yeah. So a lot of the jokes got cut from the version that aired on NBC because they were just too mean. Mm-hmm. And actually, I wrote a lot of jokes at NBC's expense, just trashing the network. And all those jokes got cut out. Uh Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, last comic standing. I feel like it would have been. I don't. I don't want to say a better show, but maybe a more effective show if it was on like cable, where it could be more no holds barred. You know. I'd agree, and if you think about it, whereas other big competition shows such as American Idol or The Voice have legitimately launched some pretty big careers, right? Mm-hmm. In my opinion, last comic standing. It really didn't launch careers in a major way. Right. You know, yes, it, it got some comedians paid a little more on the road from their normal fee. Mm-hmm. But in terms of taking someone who's an unknown and making them a household name or even them, even making them a major, major comedy star, it just never happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. You, you don't really hear about that fan anymore. Oh, yeah. you said it right before I did, so. <laughs> you. I mean, I remember when that show started, all the Dat Fan t-shirts and record albums. I mean, it was just, you couldn't you couldn't turn around and not see Dat Fan somewhere. Yeah, Dat Fan mania didn't really last as long as Justin Bieber mania, i got to no, say. No, no. Probably because yeah. he didn't have as good of a hairstyle. It may have been that. <laughs> he, did, he didn't have that swoopy thing with his hair. Yes. <laughs> That fanissance didn't last uh, very long, unfortunately. Uh, actually, uh, Hugh, I have a question. So you said you started in New York and then you moved that to L.A. And I was wondering uh, what was the why what was the decision to do that? Because I mean, New York is a pretty huge stand up, uh, you know, has a huge stand up scene here. So like, I was wondering what the I what the thinking was to go to the to West Coast and like how were the scenes different? Maybe you saw that right. So the the real reason was for television. Because you're right, New York had a lot of talented comedians and a lot of clubs. But at that time, very few TV shows, uh, television production was being done in New York. So if you wanted a career doing more than just working comedy clubs, you kind of needed to be seen in Los Angeles. That's what everyone said. Mm, Got it. It was accurate at the time. So I decided, well, I don't want to work here in New York and get really good but be sort of under the radar. I'd rather get noticed and be in sick competition quickly. So that's what led to my decision. Okay. And that obviously worked out for you, I would say. 
honestly. And looking back on it, it was pretty ballsy move because I was a young, inexperienced comic, and you can't be that good when you're that young. Mm-hmm. But I had something. You know, I had my writing ability. I was a natural performer. So I very quickly was mixing it up with really talented people, everyone from Dennis Miller and um, Andrew Dice Clay and Bob Saget. Like, I met them early in my career, and they were already on the road to greatness. But if I had stayed in New York, I obviously wouldn't have had those connections. Hmm. Right, right. So so how did your, your path lead you to SNL? You were, you were friends with David Spade, isn't that right? That's right. So okay. Spade and I met at the Improv in L.A. and immediately hit it off. Mm-hmm. We just shared a sensibility. So we became friends, and I'd say fairly quickly he got SNL and would reach out to me just for help, Mm -hmm. writing Hollywood Minute jokes and punching up sketches and stuff like that. So I really give him credit for introducing me to the powers that be at Saturday Night Live. Okay, so were you coming into the offices to do that, or were you just doing that on the side? It was on the side. Okay. He's in New York. I'm in Los Angeles, faxing him jokes. Right. Talking to him on the phone a lot. Yeah. But I never set foot at SNL until I did visit the city when I think I was doing stand-up, and he was already there with Rob Schneider and Sandler, who I both knew. Uh Uh-huh. And um, he invited me to hang out one late night at the show, which was a blast. So they let me sit in the writer's room and you guys will relate to this. Jim Downey, who I heard a lot about was a legend. He was running the writer's room. Mm-hmm. So I got to sit in there for hours while they were punching up that week's show. Wow. And uh, Fred Wolf, who I was friends with, you know, you're probably familiar with was mm-hmm. on the show a long time. He would say, Hey, Hugh, what do you think? What do you think of this sketch? You got any jokes? So I was, you know, trying to be very humble and I didn't want to step on anyone's toes. So I may have a couple times suggested something, but I pretty much just sat and observed. Right. Right. Oh. And that that's, that's wild. I mean, did you know Downey and Fred Wolf before that, or did you meet them for the I first time then? Yes. Okay. In fact, I knew Fred Wolf before I knew Spade. Okay. Fred and I used to do stand up together on the road in California and at local clubs. Downey, I never met in my life. Uh, But I'll tell you guys something hilarious. Downey had this thing in the office. It was a Magic Johnson Nerf basketball set Mm -hmm. where if you threw the Nerf basketball into the net, then a, record, a, a recording of Magic's voice would go off. And so the voice said three different things that they took from Magic's interviews. One was, it's the ultimate. I remember that was one. And another was like, yes. It was just his voice. Uh-huh. So Downey would for hours do a bit where he would basically go, Magic, are you HIV positive? <laughs> yes. Magic, what's it like to have unprotected sex? It's the ultimate. And he would just harp on this, saying the most dark, inappropriate things about magic. 
using the Magic Johnson Nerf basketball recordings. Wow. Uh, pretty much, I remember going, yeah, I belong here. This is totally my sense of humor. I need to be on the show. These are my people. Yes, I really did think that. So when, when you kind of like get into the show like that, where you're starting off just uh, writing jokes for Spade on the side, did you have to submit a packet for that? Or did no. you just... No, you... it was all informal. It was, okay. I'm friends with Spade. Spade has a right, like any cast member does, to reach out to comedy friends for help. Uh-huh. Obviously, it was dumb on the hush-hush. Like, he's... Everyone, it's so competitive. You're fighting for your job. It's not like he's broadcasting to everyone. Yeah, Hugh Fink, my buddy in L.A., wrote that joke or is helping me. But it was certainly... Uh, acceptable right but he could, he could like i don't know six weeks in say like hey could could hugh come in when he's in town because he he's written some stuff for him yeah and it was done more my guess is at the time even if i weren't a professional comedy guy if spade just wanted a friend of his to come up and hang as long as the person didn't cause a problem mm-hmm. the show was fairly casual about that stuff Right. They were then. But yeah, the fact that I was a working up and coming stand up um, would make it even more understandable. So no one questioned that I was there. And I remember because Sandler and I were friendly, we hung out a bit that night and it was a great experience. Mm-hmm. And it was also like the, the pre 9-11 security when you could still like just walk into a building in New York City and go up. And, and you wouldn't have to deal with security guards necessarily. That's all true. That's yeah. right. In fact, you know, I wrote on the show when 9-11 happened. At the top of the show, you mentioned my years. Right. So I saw the change just during my tenure. Yeah. That, how much tougher it became to get into the building and ride up the elevator. And that was your last season on the show, right? You won an Emmy for that season. That's right. So, I mean, what what's that like? You're You're... 9-11 has happened. You come back September 29th, 2001, and they find anthrax in the building that week? Yes. I don't remember if it was that week, uh-huh. but they definitely found it while we were in pre-production. And it was interesting. Some people who I worked with were completely freaked out and immediately went home. I stayed at NBC In other words, I didn't feel threatened. I was concerned. But I got to be part of this meeting. We met with the head of NBC News at the time, um, Andrew Lack. Mm -hmm. He gathered us all together and gave this speech basically telling us our safety was the utmost concern of the network and not to worry. And he understood that the people were scared, but that we should all hang in there. Um but yeah, it was a very weird time. That's nuts. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, so yeah, so um, I guess as you became an SNL writer, you kind I mean, I, f- f- we've heard the stories about the uh, the writing room and how, you know, people are always kind of fighting to get their stuff on the air. Uh, you know, John and I, we actually did an episode on the um, Saturday Night, the, that small little documentary film that like James Franco did. So I was wondering like, uh, I mean, did you have to sort of, you know, do any of that where you had to like sort of fight for your airtime or was it because you sort of had an in with Spade and like you sort of earlier, you kind of got like acclimated already into the, into the room that was, you were 
it was like a little bit easier for you to for you to get your ideas on. on the well, end. the only thing that made it easier for me my first season was I produced and created David's segment Spade in America. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So it was pretty cool. We had our own little segment on the show. Right. Uh, so it wasn't competing with you know ten other writers who had material for that slot. However, there were a couple times where we our segment got cut from the live show. Mm. It didn't. Wow. So that was frustrating, which proves to you how there's no guarantee on Saturday Night Live. Right. You know right. what I mean? It's like Lorne Michaels, and they can decide that night what gets on the air, even if you've rehearsed it and filmed it or anything. And and how much excess material would they generate in, in your day on the show? Like, I know the, the dress rehearsals are longer than the live show. Would you right. have like a half hour more of material, more than that? Yeah, I wouldn't say more than that. I would say, and by the way, based on my experience guest writing at the show two years ago, mm-hmm. nothing's changed in that regard. I would say it's it could be 15 minutes of extra material at the most a half hour, but somewhere okay. in between that. Right, and it's interesting because, like nowadays, they put up the the cut for time sketches on YouTube a lot they of times. Do. Yeah, we, we see it. We see like one or two every week, and those are always interesting to check out. And we try to cover those on the podcast when we're running down a new show, and and we, we usually say like, "Oh yeah, I wish this was in the show," or "Yeah, I see why they cut this." And it's it's interesting to see. It gives you a little insight into how they they pick the material. It definitely does, and that process of picking the material, there's a lot of factors, right? It mm-hmm. could be that the guest host doesn't like that sketch. So they go through the motions all week of rehearsing it and doing it. Mm-hmm. When push comes to shove, they basically say, yeah, I don't really want this sketch to be on the air. So that could be why it's cut. The other reason stuff gets cut is if they're trying to showcase certain cast members for that episode mm-hmm. and okay, this actor's already in three other sketches, so we're going to cut this one to allow another cast member to, you know, have a bigger part. Right. So there's different reasons. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's politics in it. And, I mean, when you started on the show, it was also just such an interesting time on the show because there had been this massive turnover in the cast, and I'm assuming behind the scenes, too. Like you started at the same time as Will Ferrell and Sherry O'Terry and Daryl Hammond and that whole cast. And there were just maybe like uh, three holdovers, I think. There were Spade, Tim Meadows, and uh, uh, someone else. Molly I'm Shannon. Molly Shannon. There you go. Right. That's right. So what was that yeah. like? That I mean, that was the last time that I can remember where they were seriously talking about possibly canceling the show. You're 100% right. And... We were all, of course, a lot of us had never worked in TV before, so we were just excited and didn't worry about sort of all the rumors, but they were floating around for sure. Mm -hmm. And even NBC, which normally, I think, stayed away from the show because they weren't welcome in terms of the network executives, that first season, we had Lauren Lauren Littlefield flew in a few times. Wow. I was there at the show. It was just this weird feeling because that's not normally how SNL operates. Yeah, that's that's nuts, right? Mm-hmm. 
That's uh, ooh. so there. There was that sort of feeling of foreboding throughout, but I guess you just have to sort of keep your head down and just you know just do the best work you can. Uh, and also speaking of which, we should probably. Yeah, I was thinking maybe we should like get into some of the the sketches you wrote. Um, yeah, one one that really sort of has took a life of its own that sort of has like a cult following now. Uh, on the Lucy Lawless episode, the uh, Stevie Nicks fajita roundup, like yes. the, I I looked at that sketch and I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. This was wow. How do you come up with the idea for this? Like it was, uh, I don't know. I, I I still dig it, but I was, I was like, how do you even? How do you even come up with this idea? Thank you. Well, here's how I came up with it. I always made a point to meet with the guest hosts on Tuesday nights because they'd make the rounds of the writers' offices. And at that point, if you chose, you could have a private meeting with them sort of to either run your ideas by them or just kind of figure out what you want to do. So I had Lucy come to my office, and I asked her if she did any impressions. Hmm. Because honestly, I was kind of struggling with, like, I don't know what to write for this woman. She's right. from New Zealand. She's on Xena Warrior Princess, a show I've never seen. I didn't really have a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. And she said that she, well, I do a Stevie Nicks impression. I said, seriously? She goes, yeah, people tell me it's good. So I didn't even ask her to do it. I just trusted her. And I said, okay, cool. So she left my office, and I decided right then and there, I'm going to write a sketch where she's doing Stevie Nicks, I have no idea what the sketch is going to be. So it's now probably approaching midnight. I'm not kidding you. Mm-hmm. And I'm still, and then I go, okay, I got to do something that's so out of the box. It's not a Fleetwood Mac concert. It's not Stevie Nicks singing at a, at a traditional music venue. So that's when I start going, what if she's doing a promotion for something, but her, but it's not even a high-class promotion. It's something very low-rent. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing just started coming together. And I, I knew her reputation. She was a bit of a hippie chick. She also, there were rumors about her cocaine use and all this stuff. So I used all of those elements to put her in Sedona, Arizona, running a super cheap Mexican restaurant. <laughs> And there, this this sketch, there's such a cult following around this sketch. They actually did an oral history on it about a year ago on on the website uh, The mm-hmm. Ringer. And you were talking about how, like, because when you write uh, a sketch, you are more or less producing it, right? That's correct. And and so you you were telling them, no, I want the food to look crappier. It's got to be a, a really low quality <laughs> restaurant. Oh, you're you're right, John. And I, you know, looking back on it, you can see. I think that was a really smart creative decision, right? Yeah. Because if the pictures of the food had just been normal, it would it wouldn't have particularly been funny. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I made the graphics department find crappy looking food was got consistent laughs through the whole sketch. Yeah, and the fact that it's like it's just her singing, you know, Rhiannon, but changing the lyrics to talk about burritos and quesadillas. Like it's pretty, right. it's, it's pretty I, hilarious. That, and honestly, that was the most fun part of the sketch. Was right. in terms of writing, was taking classic Stevie Nicks songs and going, "What's a way I can shoehorn in the most ridiculous words that pertain to Mexican food?" They don't even have to. If the if they rhyme, the rhyme can be really bad. Mm-hmm. 
so I think there's four songs we used, right? But they Something just like got that. more and more absurd so that we ended with Landslide, her classic ballad. Right. And I remember I literally just used the last lyric, Landslide kept me down. I didn't even change it. <laughs> I just thought it's funny to just have her singing about beans and rice and all this stuff. And she still goes, and Landslide kept me down. Well, honestly, landslide does apply to Mexican food as well. I mean, if you're, oh, especially if you're not at a high quality place, that's know. right. That's right. Um, yeah, and this, and yeah, the, I mean, the other thing I love, I love writing funny lyrics because you know I'm a classical violinist mm-hmm. and I'm pretty musical. So any chance I got to put music in a sketch, that was always among my favorite things. Yeah, and and I love it. another thing I love about the sketch is that it's just her. There's no other cast members in it, which is pretty rare some for a, for an SNL sketch where it's just just a host and yeah, no other cast members. You might remember, Darren, there's a young Jimmy Fallon. He doesn't speak. He's the piano player. Oh, so that's right. You're right. Background of the Mexican restaurant, just sitting there at the keyboard. <laughs> I stand corrected. It's look, like look back at a sketch years later and then you realize like, Oh, there's that person who became super famous later on. Like, I mean, it's it's like seeing uh, Tina Fey when she was before she was the head writer. Or you see like Paula Pell in like audience questions now. And totally. yeah, uh, and, and I'm sure you popped up on there as well. You you did a segment I, on Weekend Update, right? I did. I did my own piece on Update. It got big laughs. It was the um, Charlie Saron show. Mm-hmm. And um, the topic was perfect for your podcast. I came on the show to talk about how I was at that season, maybe the only Jewish writer. And that maybe that's why people said Saturday Night Live isn't funny. <laughs> Jew on the writing staff. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I use that to segue organically into the nominee of the first vice presidential Jewish candidate, which was Joe Lieberman. Right. Oh, yeah. And, I happened to do a really good Lieberman impression. So I was able to do my impression of Lieberman on my update piece. And it was that was the year that um, Jimmy Fallon and Tina Fey co-hosted Update. Oh, nice, nice. That, that was a golden era of Update as, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it was th- cool. Those, those were, now, did you have any – is it tough for you to get on the show when you are just a writer to get a segment on Update? Was that – Really, really hard because yeah. think about it. You're, the show's already competitive, right? You've got Will Ferrell competing against Molly Shannon, competing against Norm Macdonald for sketches. Then you've got me, a writer, competing with them mm-hmm. for a spot. And spots on Weekend Update are coveted. Right. You know, just like you see Cecily Strong and, and Bill Hader. Like, those are sought-after spots. Right. So... It was really, really hard. And there were a couple other funny update pieces I did that made it to dress rehearsal, but they did not. They got cut before the live show. Oh, that's got to be frustrating. It is really frustrating. And yeah. yet it goes with the territory. Exactly. Could you recycle any of that material into your stand-up act? Um, that's a great question. I will tell you one that I was proud of that kind of bombed, but the only people laughing were the... SNL writers and cast. I did a bit, you guys, where I, I was I called myself like Hugh Fink, consumer affairs reporter. So uh-huh. they brought me out, 
and I was allegedly there to report on what you thought was going to be my review of um, a, a local children's hospital in Manhattan. But I basically spent the entire review bitching about how I was mistreated at the cafeteria at the hospital <laughs> and how the food sucked and how the service sucked. And when I complained, they were rude to me. So it became almost like a restaurant review under the guise of talking about health care. <laughs> so, you know, wow. it is a really funny concept, right? Right, right. But it's really dark because I think I started off by saying, you know, uh, you know, on the 17th floor houses, you know, the leukemia victims. I was just like setting it up how, how serious the hospital was. But it kind of chilled the room because they did not like the fact that I was this sort of, you know, arrogant guy bitching about how mistreated I was by the restaurant at the hospital. Wow. <laughs> That's a, yeah, it's, uh, it's humor can be a little edgy sometimes. So you gotta, yeah, I say so, but it was. I remember being feeling so in control of my craft, which is a nice feeling where I'm out there in a live studio audience at 8H, and I'm as a comedian and stuff, used to getting laughs, but I was not getting laughs. But I didn't at all back down, like, I totally stuck to the character, uh-huh. and that's what made Steve Higgins and the other people on the show laugh uncontrollably because they said it was great to just see me just commit. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's actually what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know what, uh, when you talk about that, what that kind of reminds me of is, uh, another sketch you wrote, uh, the, the, uh, Larry King sketch with, uh, Norm Macdonald. Yes. Cause his, I don't know. Like he's like, cause Norm is one of those guys who's, his like sense of humor is, it's like he's kind of running on a different frequency than most people. It's not a broad type of thing, and not everybody will get it. But the people that get it really get it. And like I really love mm-hmm. that um, that uh, that uh, that that Larry King uh, sketch you wrote for him, where it was like USA Today, where it's literally just him looking to the camera and delivering these one-liners, like these sort of non sequiturs, switching to another camera, looking into it, delivering another line. And like uh, in between that, there were a few times where he would just like stare at the camera just a little too long and not say anything. And it was just like that nervous kind of energy was like throughout the audience, the way he was just like not saying anything. And that would just like even get a bigger laugh from everyone. Like, uh, can you talk about that sketch a little bit? Yeah, thank you. Um, Sometimes people ask me, what's my favorite sketch I've ever written for SNL? I say it's those Larry Kings. Wow. Because in the way you described it, I also have that sort of offbeat, unpredictable edge, which I think that sketch incorporated. And it was the, the mix of, you know, some of the jokes were just plain weird, like almost as if Larry's senile. He goes, does anybody remember baseball cards? <laughs> Right, that's the one. Yeah, nobody remembers, right? Right, right. So that's not particularly. That's not a mean joke. It's just weird, right? Yes. But then, two sentences later, I'd have him go, "Is it just me, or is anyone else sick and tired of Nelson Mandela?" <laughs> and that would make people, you know, kind of wince because who the hell ever makes fun of Nelson Mandela? Right. Um, and then I had sort of 
the jokes that he would do where they were about something really dark. So he'd say, um, I have no tolerance for people who commit rape. <laughs> wow, Larry, thanks for going out on a limb and saying you're anti-rape. That's that's a tough stand to take, man. Yeah, that's a, but, um, that's a thing. I, I think what you said is true, that the pauses in between each joke made it, to me, put it over the top as just being an unusual piece of comedy. Yeah, right. Definitely. There was... The, I mean, there was that one time where he said that line that you just said, the uh, the baseball cards line, and he just stares right into the camera for, like, longer than he should. And, like, he's not breaking. He's just, like, staring at, just staring right into your eyes. And, like, the audience is like, what's happening? Why, why isn't he going to the next camera? And then he just that's waits exactly a little bit right. longer, and then he goes to the next camera. That's, uh, that's, that's Norm right there. That's Norm right there. No, and it's, I think like it was the perfect synchronicity of, me as a writer, knowing what works for Norm and knowing his sensibility. And by the way, I convinced him to do Larry King. He'd never done Larry King on the show. Oh, really? I just had, I'm pretty good at casting. I knew in my gut that he'd do a brilliant Larry King. I just knew it. And man, he was, I think he was the best Larry King ever, by far. Yeah, I mean, his his cadence really lent itself to Larry King and I mean, you don't really think of Norm MacDonald as an impressionist, but he had some killer impressions. He did Bob Dole. He did his Burt Reynolds. Right. And, and his Larry King was great as well. Yes. Letterman, too. Great. great Letterman. Oh, yeah. Yes. He did, he did Letterman. Letterman. You you wrote that one, right? I, Tom Giannis actually wrote the Letterman, but it breaks my heart. I did write one that killed at the table read. I mean, crushed. Mm-hmm. And then... John Goodman was the guest host, and I had him playing. I'm trying to remember what he was doing on it, but somehow the sketch got killed for, like you said, political reasons. Mm-hmm. Because it it was like it probably would have been first or second on the show. It did that well, but something wow. killed it. That was so upsetting to me. Wow. I re- I remember like some behind the scenes footage, and uh, this was from when. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was hosting. So I think it was from your era. And I can't remember if it was from the James Franco documentary or what, but they're, they're trying to decide what the lineup is going to be for the show. And Gwyneth Paltrow just goes, well, what's the funniest? And Lauren just immediately goes, Oh, like that matters. (laughs) (laughs) Cause like, you know, Lauren's thinking of about like six different levels. (laughs) He really is. I mean, He's a mad genius, so it's hilarious that he said that. Yeah, and I just I love that he said that, and then he said it on camera. <laughs> that's pretty great. Yeah, and that's I mean that's just and that's a killer line too. It is a killer line. Now, uh, who who really surprised you as a host in either a good or a bad way during your air on the show? Because you, you're there for seven seasons, you got about like twenty hosts a, a, a season. So that's like 140, 150 celebrities you got coming through there. It is a lot. You're right. Um, I would say I didn't know how multi-talented Kevin Spacey was until he hosted SNL. Mm -hmm. Right, because he did so many great impressions and he was just pretty remarkable in that regard. Um, and not so much in other regards. Right. Correct. 
Um, I would say there were definitely people who disappointed. Um, let me think who was a cut. Well, if you don't want to throw anybody under the bus, you don't have to. That's okay. But okay. (laughs) Who seemed like a funny enough guy. Mm Kind of just, there was nothing there as a host. Yeah. Just not much personality. Yeah. Not a lot to grab onto, huh? Right. So there were always surprises that way. The late Danny Aiello, I will say, he seemed funny at the table read, but once he went on camera and did the sketches, they kind of fell flat. Oh. That was a lot of the show, by the way, where on paper, the person reading it, they seem like they're going to be great, but then when you actually mount the sketch they are not good mm. and it's That's a bummer possible to predict but it does happen right yeah. is that just like a nervous thing or it can be mm-hmm. it could be a nervous thing or it can be a thing where as a you know television's weird sometimes people come off better on film than live television sure and it's just it's just an electricity that some people lack when they go on camera, I guess you could say. Yeah. Hey, yeah. So like some, some performers perform better. They perform better, you know, uh, in front of a camera where they can do, you know, multiple takes and whatnot. And some are, can do it live right on the spot. It, it, you know, everybody's That's different. Right. And, you know, I think there's a lot of movie actors who are great in a scene in a movie, you know, where they can, rehearse it and not look at cue cards and all that stuff Mm -hmm. but you put them in a tv studio and somehow it just doesn't work and that's an intangible quality but you see it a lot i I wonder if that's why somebody like alec baldwin has thrived as a host because he he has done stage work and kevin spacey's done stage work so maybe they had more of the tools to really be successful as hosts it's possible right i mean you know, also was a, like Jennifer Aniston was always really good. I think I worked with her twice. Mm-hmm. She hosted and she was good. She could yeah. do characters. She could kind of play herself, but she just had that quality where she popped on camera in a sketch. Yeah, yeah. I thought there were rumors that she was actually going to be a cast member, like before she got friends. Like, yes, I remember hearing that. Right. I think it was around the time that I got hired, or so the, like around that time i did hear oh, nice. that. yeah i think yeah I, I i do remember reading that that she did a uh, audition to be a cast member and that's mm-hmm. boggles the and, mind to think of that alternate universe where that happened yeah and also uh yeah lisa kudra almost made it onto snl too before of course before friends that's right that's yeah crazy exactly crazy now, I, I understand, Hugh, you you have the record of SNL writers. You've written more SNL monologues than any other writer. Was that by accident or by design? How did that? How did you get into that? It was by accident, but it was just I gravitated toward monologues as a stand-up. Mm-hmm. I had the ability to not just write for myself, but sort of adapt someone else's voice and persona. So it came naturally, and... Writing monologues is considered sort of a thankless task at the show because, you know, the host is nervous about it. So there's a lot on the line for them and it's not like you get great reward 
mm-hmm. for writing seller monologue. And if you guys have noticed, I haven't really enjoyed the direction that monologues have gone the last several years on the show. It seems to me they're less just balls out funny mm-hmm. and more about being charming and sort of just making the host feel good or making the audience feel good. Right. Whereas when I was there, I felt a tremendous pressure and challenge and satisfaction to make them really funny. You know, I watched a few of the monologues you wrote and, and something that struck me was, yeah, they, one thing, they were definitely shorter. They were just punchier. They're like two, two and a half minutes and you're out. Like the, you, you did one for Robert Downey Jr., and yep. it was right after he got out of prison. You said he was kind of a sport about that, right? He was a great sport about it. No, he said, absolutely go for it. Tear me to shreds. Make fun of the fact that I was in jail for drugs. And he was really cool about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And there was also the uh, the Britney Spears uh, monologue that you wrote uh, for her as well. That's right. And again, she was a kid. She was maybe 17 when I worked with her. But I give her credit that she wasn't above making fun of the rumors about her lip syncing and her boob job. Mm-hmm. And um, she just embraced it. And that's not true with, um, I give you an example, like uh, I wrote this monologue for Bill Pullman that was slated to be on the show uh-huh. until he changed his mind midweek and didn't like the, the attitude, which is, I was basically making fun of the fact that everyone confuses him with Bill Paxton and Michael Douglas and Jeff Daniels. Right. And something changed where he got mad that he felt like I'm above this, but of course he wasn't above it. He should have done it. Right. 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 Absolutely. It would have again made him more likable. Instead we had no monologue. The day, the morning of the show, Lauren was still, trying to have me convince him to do it and he wouldn't so if you go back and look he did this nothing monologue it oh. had one half a joke in it and it may have lasted 60 seconds but it was just a ball of nothingness that that's a shame because like i remember like a similar sort of thing to the bill pullman uh bill paxton thing when um uh they they did a game show sketch and it was uh Dylan McDermott or Dermot Mulroney. And they had, and they had like, this was after your era, I believe, but they had, they had three uh, black men trying to tell the two of those guys apart. And they actually had the real Dermot Mulroney uh, make a cameo. I think Jamie Foxx was the host that week. And, and he, he goes like, Oh my God, I've been sleeping with another man's wife. Cause even he was confused. (laughs) That's great. And again, the fact that you remember it all these years later, only makes you like Dermot Mulroney more yeah. for, for being a good sport. So yeah, it's unfortunate. Sometimes with these hosts, they might be okay with it, but they're stupid publicists mm-hmm. or you know, entourage somehow take offense and convince them not to do stuff. And I think it's always bad advice. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree with I that. And also... For, for J-Lo, when she hosted, where I had her playing Madonna... Oh, nice. And it killed at the table read. And she was on board. But she came to me like the next day and said, I'm really sorry. I just can't do the sketch. I said, why? She said, Madonna and I have had, we got into an argument 
about something and we he, we repaired it. She goes, I frankly just don't want to piss her off again. I'm afraid that this will. So I was, of course, really disappointed. I did appreciate that J-Lo was honest about it. Yeah. Right. Now, that, that makes sense. You never you don't want to have the Madonna Hive come after you or whatever they're right. called. Sure. Madonna, yeah. Madonna Holics. I mean, Madonna's, Madonna's got like those ninja assassins. It's it's like a whole thing. Yeah, you don't want that. She's like John Gotti. Right. right. <laughs> you know, and they're, they're like, the dancers are like killing you while they're voguing. It's just a very humiliating <laughs> way to die. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I I wonder, like we mentioned the Britney Spears sketch and if, if or the, excuse me, the Britney Spears monologue and it's so funny because she's talking about r- the rumors that she had a boob job, which were flying around at the time. And as she's talking about this, her breasts actually start moving underneath her dress, which I'm assuming was some sort of radio controlled thing. Correct. It was a, a guy had the job of standing off camera mm-hmm. with a radio controlled device that was attached to her bra so that when he manipulate the button, Mm-hmm. It would move her what looked like her real boobs moving. Right. So it was a hilarious visual, and it was challenging to get the device to work exactly right. Yeah. But we started rehearsing it Thursday, so we had a couple days to get it right. How, how do you pitch something like that to her? Are you nervous going up to her and saying, like, hey, Brittany, we want to have your breasts moving underneath your dress? <laughs> job to be really confident about it and not apologize or pitch it half-assed yeah so i would just you know the how people pitch movie ideas or premises i would tell them to come to my office and you know make them feel good and then i would sort of pitch my ideas and i never tried to pitch many ideas maybe one or two but i think that was my process with Brittany. And she didn't take offense at all, or she didn't seem to. That's, that's great. great. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, that, yeah, there was another sketch of yours that you wrote, uh, Caribbean Essence Bath Oil, which, what was this? I mean, it's it's Tracy Morgan with dreadlocks, and he's in uh, bubble baths with various cast members, and I'm just like, how are you pitching that? You you go up to like, hey, Sherry O'Terry, we're going to have you naked in a bathtub with Tracy Morgan this week. <laughs> <laughs> well, you make a good point because truth be told, Sherry on the set was a little uncomfortable doing it. Uh-huh. And, you know, I just, she and the, me and the director had to let her know that, hey, hey, we're not going to make you uncomfortable. And, um, obviously, it, was, it wasn't shot in front of an audience that was shot as a pre-tape right. in front of a screen but um tracy was it was his first season on the show so he was just this you know wide-eyed kid who was trying to figure things out he didn't seem to take offense even though you know his his belly's being exposed and he's half naked on camera Mm -hmm. um so i thought you were going to mention the fact that you know when i wrote that bit believe it or not i was really trying to say something cleverly about racial stereotypes. I would say it's not stereotypes, but maybe racial tension. Mm -hmm. And I deliberately came up with this premise of 
what would be more terrifying to these suburban white women than having this big black guy emerge from their bathtub and whisk them away? Like, that was the premise I started with. Gotcha, gotcha. Wow. I made it very lighthearted and silly. But at the root of what I was going for was that notion. Wow, I did. I did. Wow, that's a interesting. T- I think that'd be more erotic than terrifying. But okay, <laughs> maybe that's just me. Well, I guess it's the eye of the beholder, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but um, obviously the way we shot it made it look erotic more so. Right. And there was nothing onerous or you know that would make people in any regard. I don't think. But I'm just being honest with you. That was my original premise. I mean, it's it's Tracy Morgan and Dreadlock, so how could it not be erotic? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I mean, that's right. And then the fact that you know, I tried to play with like the the bisexual nature that by the end it's Will Ferrell and Alexander yes. being whisked away. Yes, so it's no longer just women, but now it's a guy and Will. The, you know, the look on his face is sheer delight. He's enjoying the fact that this huge Rastafarian is carrying him away. <laughs> Who wouldn't? And it, that, that reminds me of another uh, sketch you did. Speaking of half-naked cast members, uh, you were you did Mr. Peepers. I sure did. With, with, with Chris Catan. Uh, yes. So Chris had the Mr. Peepers character developed before he came to Saturday Night Live when he was a member of the Groundlings. Okay. Group. Yes. But obviously... He had no idea how it was going to work on TV. So he showed me a tape of himself doing it live at the Groundlings. And the very first one I wrote, you know, was more sort of giving it context, which was I imagined an anthropology professor having a major discovery (laughs) and then bringing Mr. Peepers out to his college students. And then having all hell break loose when Peepers is spitting the apple and ends up humping him. (laughs) So it's not that I wrote it ever thinking it would be more than once, but it did go over huge. So we ended up doing like four or five. That's, yeah. I mean, that's one of those sketches that you look at and you're just like, where does that come from? How do you discover that you can eat an apple like that? (laughs) Right, well, so that I give Katan all the credit for. Mm -hmm. That was a skill that he came up with before Saturday Night Live. But obviously, you still need someone to create a template for how is this going to work as a sketch. Right. And I don't know how many of them you guys have seen, but my favorite one, just because it's so odd, was I did a parody of the movie Elephant Man, Uh where instead of John Merrick being, you know, the, the tragic figure, it's Mr. Peepers. Who's living in 19th century England, and I had Chelsea uh, Kelsey Grammer as his benefactor. So, oh, I think I remember this. Yeah, yeah, it had the line in it Mm -hmm. where um, Kelsey Grammer is defending Mr. Peepers to a mob, and he goes, "He is not an animal." And then he pauses and goes, "Well, actually, is an animal, (laughs) but." You gotta give him a break. Sure. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it seems like your time there at SNL was pretty amazing. Like, you got to work with amazing people. I mean, I'm sure you must have like a like a story or two about some about uh, you know the work, some cast members or uh, guest hosts or just something that happened sort of behind the scenes that maybe you know well, us, us folks would know that. On the subject of peepers, is Charlie Saron. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a parody of a softcore sex movie on Showtime. I think there was a real show called Bedtime Stories at the time on Showtime. Okay. And were like these erotic sexual movies geared to women. So okay. I did one where it was, you know, all in soft, porn-esque lighting. And it, the joke was that she is blindfolded as part of an erotic sexual ritual. Mm-hmm. And her, her lover brings in Mr. Peepers to satisfy her. <laughs> Oh boy! So she doesn't know that the guy who's going at it with her is a half monkey. But there's a thing at the end of the sketch that I put in the script where she's being violently she, she's basically humping Mr. Peepers. Mm-hmm. So it's incredibly it's incredibly um, uh, explicit. Well, the NBC censors saw the rehearsal and they came to me and said. No, no, you got to tone that down. It's way over the top. It looks too sexual. It looks like they're having sex. So I went to Charlize Theron and told her the note. Uh-huh. And she goes, she goes, fuck it. I'm not changing it. I'm going to totally go for it on the air. And, and she did. I love that. I mean, because, yeah, they, they can't stop you. I mean, I'm assuming exactly. most of the time you're not on a delay or anything. So Exactly. They gave the note. There was nothing they could do. And if you watch it, like she was so into it. She was such a good sport. So I always appreciated her commitment. She thought it was hilarious. That's awesome. That's yeah. She, she seems like a really cool person. Whenever I've seen uh, interviews uh, with her, she seems like a good sport. Yeah, she was. I mean, I, I have no idea what she'd be like now hosting Saturday Night Live, but that was earlier in her career mm-hmm. and she had more to prove. And um, she was really good. Oh, that is that is very cool. Now you you uh, came back to the show recently. You you uh, guest wrote on a couple episodes in uh, 2019, where uh, Sandra O oh was hosting, and then the next week it was uh, Kit Harrington from Game of Thrones. What was what was that experience like? How, why did you uh, come back to the show? Steve Higgins and I have kept in touch, and he was kind enough to invite me as a guest writer mm-hmm. and said, you know, it'll be cool. You just help help these young writers. You you know the show well. It's always good to get a, get a new voice. And, of course, I'm aware that being put in that situation, you don't want to come in as the know-it-all to make anyone feel uncomfortable. And also, it's so competitive that it freaks other writers out. It's one more writer they have to compete with to get stuff on the air. Right. So for those two weeks, I didn't end up writing anything that did get on the air myself, but I participated in the rewrites, and it was really fun to just be back after all those years with a completely new cast. And it was comforting. Some of the staff of the show is still there. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom Broker, who's the famous guy who does all the um, costumes and hair and makeup you mm-hmm. overseas. And um, uh, who else? Well, Ken Amon, you know, who sort of does all the non-creative stuff producing behind the scenes, has been there for years. 
And the oh, the production design team is the same. The ones who do the set design. Twenty right. some years. I mean, yeah, there's like one of the the famous people that uh, the the real SNL cult <laughs> knows is uh, is Akira, who's, Akira. who's been yeah, who's been with the show from the beginning and is probably he, he pops up as Mister Sulu in every Star Trek sketch they do. Exactly. Yeah. No, Akira was very happy to see me. I think. Oh, he said, "Oh God, you make me feel old." <laughs> But no, he looked good, and uh, so it was really fun to go back. And Lauren was still sharp. Um, I would say the show is—it's a table read. I was struck by how much slicker everything is at the table reads. Mm-hmm. Now they've got like full-on music soundtracks accompanying the stuff. Oh wow! It, yeah, it was like less, much more formal a presentation than when I was there. Interesting. Oh, wow. had, the, had the show changed in many other ways? The other way, you guys, huge change is the rise of digital shorts. Yes. Because mm. there's three directors now on the show who every week are directing at least one short. So, of course, that is a reminder of how the less of the show is live than it used to be, right? Right. You're, but when I was there, there was one director. And now there's three. Wow. That's, in, I mean, I think we can probably credit Lonely Island for that shift. I, I would credit Lonely Island. I would say that um, uh, the, um, what was the cupcake? Oh, uh, Lazy Sunday. Yeah, yeah Lazy yes. Sunday. It's Lazy Sunday, exactly. Yeah. Lazy Sundays and, and uh, I'm on a boat, which I think maybe was the same season or right after then. Probably. Like those were the Lonely Island stuff that really launched that aspect of SNL being popular. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, as far as the new cast goes, um, are there, I mean, do you keep up with SNL still? Are there any like writers or performers that you really enjoy? Uh, is there anybody who you wish you could have written for? I think Streeter Seidel, the writer. He's a favorite of ours. He's great. And uh, when I was at the show those two weeks, seeing the stuff that he came up with, I was impressed with. Some of it reminded me of the type of things I'd want to write mm-hmm. that were there full time, like him. Yeah. And um, cast wise, I actually I think that Cecily Strong is super talented. Yep. And in some ways underused. And I realize she may be maybe she's done. I don't know. She's coming back. But just at the table read, I was very impressed with her. Yeah, I mean, right. she she is absolutely one of our favorites. Uh, Streeter is one of our favorite writers right now. I think whatever, and they haven't done this too much. They, he does a, he has a recurring sketch that he does with Mikey day. And it seems they do it whenever they have a British person hosting the, the war in words where he's the soldier writing home. Those are funny. Those are great. I, I love really good. And, and they haven't driven it into the ground. They've done it like just the right amount of, of times. So it's, I'm always happy to see it pop up again, you know? Yeah. I, I'd agree with you. I think the other one they wrote when I was there, the, the Sandra O week, mm-hmm. was remember the um, the woman named Tishy, who would just appear. Was it like someone's looking in a mirror? Oh and, yeah, uh, in their future self. Yeah. What was it? They were looking in the mirror at their future self, and then they saw yeah. that um, their future wife was Sandra O with like a visor, and like she was kind of a weird person. She was like a weird sort of a a 
obnoxious, slutty, almost like a, she seemed like a, a, a criminal mind. Um, but I know Streeter and Mikey wrote that. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think they're doing some, some really strong stuff. I think, I mean, Street, Streeter is one of my favorites. Definitely. We, we sing the praises of Cecily Strong in this podcast practically every week. If she leaves, we're, we are going to be heartbroken. <laughs> I'm with you. I th- yeah. If anything, I think she's underused, you know? Yeah. Because she doesn't just do one thing. Um, she's a good singer. Yeah. Uh, she does dialects great. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, the week I was there, I wrote a sketch that did so-so at the table read, but her part crushed. And afterwards, I'm like, God damn it. I should have written the whole sketch just about her. Uh-huh. got on the air. And it was basically, you know, I, I wrote a House as a Parliament sketch recurring back in the day that people liked a lot. Mm-hmm. So it was the C-SPAN's coverage of the British government. Okay. So just the insanity of the House of Parliament, because they all shout, they shout each other down and stuff. So I, I tried to bring that back with Kit Harrington. But I had Cecily play a, um, a British member of Parliament. Mm-hmm. Who, who, is, who is obsessed with the British actor Tom Hardy. <laughs> he just had an unhealthy sexual crush on Tom Hardy. Well, who doesn't? Exactly. So every time she would stand up, she'd like, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, is it not true that we are considering declaring a special day honoring the magnificent, handsome Tom Hardy? <laughs> <laughs> and then other parliament members would shout her down and they'd go, you know, you've been told more than once, stop bringing up Tom Hardy. <laughs> then I'd have her stand up again and go, on the subject of the, um, you know, British tax raise going on, how is this affecting Tom Hardy? <laughs> anyway, and man, it, people loved her version of it. That's great. And I was like, gosh, I really just should have kept the whole sketch about her. Well, do you, I mean, since the show has to go up in slightly less than a week, how much time do you have to rework or rewrite a, a sketch between like the read through and, and air on Saturday? Well, as you know, so the, the table read happens and then they pick X amount of sketches that are they're going to go forward with, right? Most mm-hmm. things don't get picked. But if your sketch gets picked, you do have plenty of time to rewrite it. The fact is, most things don't change that much, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, the premise is going to stay the same. The setting is pretty much going to stay the same because they have to build the set and get any costumes and stuff. What can change is dialogue can change. So you can make for crisper jokes. Um, you'll make some cuts because the sketches tend to be a little long. Right. But I'd say they don't change it's not like a page one rewrite generally. Mm-hmm. It's more just slight changes. I see. Okay. And and I imagine, I mean, because the, the show has to be pretty rigidly timed, would they get very specific? Like, I need 30 seconds out of this sketch? Absolutely. Yeah. And I can, since Darren wanted to know a behind the scenes story, here's one you'll love. I wrote a sketch, you guys, for Danny DeVito and Tracy Morgan that was on the show. Mm-hmm. We did it in dress rehearsal. It got picked. 
Now it's the live show, right? And it's um, the show has been put fairly late into the show. Like maybe it'll be the second or third to last sketch of the night. Mm-hmm. This rarely happens, but I hear over the PA in the internal studio, you think to the control room, you think to the control room. So I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? I go to the control room. Lord Michaels goes, Hugh, I need you to cut the sketch in half. Now keep in mind, it's like four minutes away from the sketch airing live. Oh my God. I'm not kidding. And I was incredulous. And I go, Lauren, we're on next. Like after the commercial break, he goes, figure it out. Wow. So this was insane. I had to make a massive trim in the sketch that honestly made the sketch kind of make no sense. <laughs> but it was the only thing I could do. What, what do you do? Do you just go up to Wally the cue card guy and just yes. grab every other card? That's exactly what I did. <laughs> oh, my God. So the, then I gathered the actors together. I ran down to the set on 8-8 at the floor and go, you guys, sorry about this. Um, the sketch is cut in half. They're like, what? I go, I know, it's insane. Just look at the cards. That's all I can tell you. Wow. So they did. And then, I'm not kidding you, some people, my friends, are like, go, Hugh, that was your sketch, right? I go, yeah, they go, that was kind of weird. Like, what happened? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, no, that, oh. that occurred. And th- and that was just because something earlier in the show ran over, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> something went over. So yes, to answer your question, the show is timed. Mm-hmm. But sometimes Lauren himself gets into a quagmire where they're like, "Lauren, you either are going to have to cut this whole sketch, or you know, you, but we're overtime." And that's when he has to decide at the last minute what he wants to do. Right. So I was glad that he, he didn't cut my sketch totally, but it made for some really messy comedy. And I I understand that was like the, part of the reason that uh, Lauren was so pissed at, at Elvis Costello back in the day when when he just like switched songs on impulse because he was screwing up the timing of the show. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. And secondly, you know, it is Lauren's show, so I don't think he respects someone who ignores his note right just does content without their approval my first season you guys i added it when you ask about rewrites i changed a joke between dress and air Mm -hmm. but i didn't run the joke by lauren oh and um the joke went on the air and he didn't like the joke and he was not happy ah and he basically called me out on it dum 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 so what, what does he do? Does he just like dress you down? Yeah, he dressed me down. I'll, I'll never forget. He goes, you know, Hugh, this isn't the fucking chuckle hut in Detroit. This is the <laughs> show. Wow. Yeah, he I would... knows how to get you feeling the worst. So he's like, okay, he's a stand-up comic. Yeah. I'll remind him of his horrible gigs on the road. Wow. And and is there a more demeaning name for a comedy club than Chuckle Hut? Yeah, exactly. I don't think there is. Yeah. But Will Ferrell and I used to laugh because he'd said that Lauren would do the same thing to him. He'd go like, maybe when you're doing this at the Groundings it gets big laughs, but this is Saturday Night Live. 
Wow. And, so and the thing that power of reminding you of your roots. Right. Wow. And the thing is, I would kill to play at the Chuckle Hut in Detroit. Sure. I know you would. In fact, after this interview, um, I've been so impressed, Darren, I was going to call them up and see if you could co-headline. I'll send a tape. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Skippy, Mark Price from Family Ties is working, so maybe I can get you a gig with him. Fantastic. I'm in. Skippy has actually shown up on my suggested Facebook friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because just because of like com- comedy friends we have in common, I think. You know, actually, you know, since you worked on uh, or created a showbiz show with David Spade, I have a weird connection to that show. Um, my, I think it was my MySpace profile picture actually ended up on that show once. They were doing a story about MySpace, and I think they just grabbed the uh, like the top eight friends of one of the writers on the show, and I can't remember what the which writer it was at this point. But somehow, I I ended up in the mix on there, and That's hilarious. And I remember I got like one or two people messaged me about it. They were like, "Hey, your picture was on the Showbiz Show with David Spade." <laughs> And it was, it was, it was just such a weird, random thing. That's pretty random. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So whenever I see the name of that show, I just kind of flash back on that. Well, technically you should put it on your resume. You've appeared on the show. I know it's a, it's a credit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I've, I've appeared on there. I, I actually, the two times I went to a taping of late night with Conan O'Brien, they happened to do shots of the audience. I ended up on camera both times. (laughs) Um, the second time I was very nervous because I'd actually lied at my day job to get out of work early. I told oh, them I had no. a doctor's appointment and then I ended up on national television that night. <laughs> I, I, I worked on, um, Betty White's off the rockers, you know, that hidden camera show. Mm-hmm. And more times than not, we would, you know, you do the prank on someone that's hidden camera. Then you have to ask them to sign the release. Right. Because so this happened more than once where, we caught people cheating on their husbands or wives. Oh my God. So, so they didn't know. And they're like, no, 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 you, you, you absolutely cannot air this. Oh boy. <laughs> so well, it, would they just like refuse to sign whatever exactly. consent form you have? Yeah, it's within their rights to refuse. And then it's a big waste. You can't use it. Yeah. Uh, and then you've just like wasted a whole afternoon or whatever. Exactly. Now you were you were also the head writer on uh, the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. What what was that experience like? How long were you with that show? I was there six months. It was right before the Showbiz Show launched because we had done the Showbiz Show pilot and were waiting for Comedy Central to greenlight it. Okay, which took several months. So I quit Ferguson Show to go do my show, the Showbiz Show. But um, it was a good experience. I inherited a writing staff from the Craig Kilborn show. Oh, this so this was early went, days. This is early, yeah. And okay. so I was put in the unfortunate position of being told by CBS that I had to decide whether to fire those writers each time their contract came up. Wow. Yeah, because I, I hadn't hired any of them. But oh, man. I did have to fire some of them because, unfortunately, Craig Ferguson is very different than Craig Kilborn. Yeah. So some of them were good writers for Colburn, but they didn't have the skills to write for Ferguson. So that was a uh, challenging thing. And then I told the writers uh, 
I'm Ferguson. I look, look, guys, I got two words for you when you think of writing for Craig Ferguson. Benny Hill. This guy mm-hmm. loves putting on wigs and dresses and doing accents and just being silly. Right. Which is Benny Hill. I said, he's not Conan O'Brien. He's not some hipster. That's He hates that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the writers really had to adjust their precious comedy concepts because, to me, he was the anti-Conan. He didn't want to do stuff that was sort of conceptual right. or thoughtful. He was not into that at all. That's got to be such a weird situation. I mean, you've got a staff of writers. They're writing for a host who's other than the host they signed up for, and you're running a writer's room of people you didn't put together. You didn't hire them. That's right. Wow. Right. <laughs> that's that's a very unusual challenge. It was that's crazy. I, I, listen, I, I learned so much from Saturday Night Live that I feel like I can handle any writer's room in any situation. Mm-hmm. But walking into that, I knew that it was challenging, and I was apologetic to the writers I had to let go. And I said, "Look, this sucks, and as you know, I didn't hire you, so this is just a strange position." Hmm. Wow. And actually, maybe we should go back to that a little bit. Like, so when did you know it was time to leave SNL? Uh, you've been there for a number of years. Did you just? It was just like it just felt no, like it was time. I felt that the cast, the new cast members, some of them were not as fun maybe to write for. And I was just feeling that my best work there was behind me. Because mm-hmm. I've been there seven years. That's a long so, time. Yeah. What's that? That's a long time. It's a long time. And so I also was so empowered as a writer there, learning you know how to produce your own sketches and work with all aspects of television production, the set design, the music and the lighting, that it really did inspire me to want to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it was the combination of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's, you get to control so much of your own material, you're, you're almost training to become a director and a producer on top That's of right. developing your writing. That explains why, like Adam McKay, my colleague at SNL, right. why he's become you know, a director and a producer. So yeah. I think it's true. Yeah, because you really get to shepherd your own material from beginning to end. And also it's just such a quick turnaround. You you That's really right. get to see what works and what doesn't. It's something you thought up like Monday or Tuesday, and then it is on national television on Saturday night. That's it's a pretty heady thing, you know? It's a heady thing. And it's, as you said, it's very empowering. Mm-hmm. And because of the... Uh, col- the collapsed amount of time this all happens in, it's in a good way, it protects you creatively because there's not enough time for too many people to give you notes. Right. Right. Where you're doing a sitcom, it's just the worst. You know, they can spend weeks browbeating a script to death uh-huh. and reading each draft and telling you, you got to change this. Well, there's no time for that at SNL. And to Lorne Michaels' credit, he doesn't want that process to exist. He wants the purity of what inspired you to write it in the first place and go to the table read that he wants sort of that spontaneity mm-hmm. to work on the air. Yeah. I mean, cause you don't want a, a comedy show of a bunch of people who are second guessing themselves. You do not. That's always the worst. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, uh, let's see. One other thing I wanted to ask you about that I noticed on, on your credits. Uh, you, you've written for Rob Lowe. He was both a host of SNL and you worked on the Comedy Central Roast for Rob yes, Lowe. Yes, I, I became friendly with Rob when he hosted SNL the first time he hosted when he was on West Wing. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you remember, the, we did a monologue, where the, which I wrote, where people uh, asked him questions about the West Wing. Right. So this is the time when Clinton was at the height of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Uh-huh. And I was able to break SNL uh, history by having this set on the air. I had I cast Jim Downey as the guy in the audience. Mm-hmm. And he stood up and said, hey, Rob, I was wondering... Um, which is the room in the White House where they blow the president? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they let us say it. Wow. Wow. History was made. So Rob and I hit it off totally. He's a really smart, funny guy. He liked my dark sense of humor. So I used him on the showbiz show. Uh, you guys would love this bit. Remember NBC's campaign, The More You Know? Da, 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 da. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I did one called What You Should Know. So shot the exact same way, but the advice from was Rob Lowe, and it was all extreme, sort of like Larry King. Mm-hmm. Just inappropriate and weird and not predictable. Uh-huh. But we shot like 30 of them, and Rob was incredible in them, and then we aired them on Showbiz Show, like we would do one one a show. Oh, oh! So he he just does a bunch in an afternoon, and then you milk that for a dozen shows. Exactly. So they were great, and then we stayed in touch and friendly. So when he decided to do the company's Central roast, um, I immediately talked to him and said, "Rob, please, 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 I got to work with you on it." He's like, "Of course." So I got to write his response to all the people on the dais. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's arguably, I don't think there's ever been a better person uh, responding on one of those Comedy Central roasts. He crushed. (sighs) And his jokes were so on point and really mean and funny. And uh, he was great. He's, uh, he, he is a really funny guy. He really is like too handsome to be as funny as he is. Totally. Yeah, it's just it's just too much to settle on one person. That's right, and he knows that about himself. Yeah, and he's I think he's in complete control of his craft. But what's impressive about him on the roast is he almost has the his rhythm and timing and stuff is that of a stand-up comic. Mm-hmm. He delivers it so well, and you know most actors, even ones who are, can, can do comedy, they can't do a monologue well. Hmm. But he's able to. He's got impeccable timing. Yeah. No, he's good. He was great on uh, Parks and Recreation. I think that's when a lot of people, or even if you want to go back to, to Wayne's World, I think that's when people yeah. maybe started to realize, like, oh, he's funny, too. Wow. That's right. Who knew? They loved him. And wasn't he in Austin Powers? He was in the second Austin Powers. He played, like, the young number two. And he, right. he has this killer Robert Wagner impression. I think he said right. on his podcast, because I think he used to date Robert Wagner's daughter or something like that. So he'd gotten yeah. to know his cadences. Uh-huh. And, he, he, you know, he's just got a killer Robert Wagner in his back pocket. 
that's hilarious. No, yeah. Rob can do impressions. He's got a very good ear. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Absolutely. I mean, did you, did you ever have something that you thought was just going to work like gangbusters on the show and then just bombed horribly for whatever reason? I'm sure you must Definitely. have, right? Yeah. My feeling to be honest is usually when I felt it was going to do great, it did do great. It was more things where I thought it was funny and hoped it would do great. Those mm-hmm. are the ones that so- sometimes didn't. Mm. So I'm trying to think of an example. Um, well, there was a sketch that I wrote for Jim Brewer that I wasn't convinced was going to kill, and then it didn't kill, and it got cut, where he played a shoe salesman. Okay. And he was the inappropriate shoe salesman, so like a woman would come into the store and go, uh, hi, could you tell me um, what's the difference between these two pairs? He goes, oh, he's like, he goes, well, these are more for like cocktail hours and stuff, and these are for banging. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. So his whole thing was just to be overtly sexual, and to every customer, that was pretty much his response: is that this pair does this, and this one, and then he'd say something crude sexually. But what happened is the problem with the sketch like that is, if they don't buy into the premise right off the top, you're dead. Yeah, because it's really a theme and variation of the same joke, mm-hmm. and they did not buy into it. Oh. So it just died. And then you're like, oh, we've still got three minutes of this. Exactly. <laughs> and it was so painful. Yeah. But that, I think because of my stand-up roots, I generally had a good sense of what works with an audience. So if I was fortunate enough to get a sketch that far, you know, to be in dress rehearsal, then it would usually do okay. It wouldn't necessarily kill, but it would do all right. Right. But obviously, we all have our missteps. And I definitely had stuff cut, but I'd like to think that more of my stuff didn't get cut. I think mathematically that'd be the truth. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's what you want. I mean, cause it's, it seems like with a show like, like SNL, it's just a numbers game, right? It's a numbers game, right? You know, Jack Handy was a guest writer, my final season on the show and he's beloved and he's brilliant, but I'd say like three out of four of his sketches would get cut. Mm. They were just, you know, very conceptual, and a lot of the audience just didn't respond. Mm. Yeah, that that can happen. Sometimes you can have a sketch that's just a little too out there in concept, or just maybe a little too much for you know people to grasp what you're trying to say. And it, it happens. It's a bummer. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's right. Hugh, I, we could we could like talk to you forever, but I, I know like Darren has to go in a little bit. Um, but something you're doing, you're doing, I mean, beyond just sharing all this knowledge and all these stories on our podcast, you're doing a sketch writing uh, workshop on June seventh and eighth. Why don't you tell us about that? That's right. I, a lot of times, I encounter and meet funny professionals like you who ask me questions about how to submit to Senate Live and how to get a submission packet ready and, and other questions about the craft of writing. So, so I've had enough requests that I decided, you know what? It'd be really cool to offer a 90-minute workshop on Zoom so that people all over the country can participate. So that's what I'm doing. 
and these are geared to you know serious-minded comedy people who who are looking to up their game writing for late night so one of the 90 minute workshops is geared specifically to sketch writing for television and the other is geared to late night talk show writing so that includes sketch but it also includes writing monologues writing desk pieces writing pre-tapes mm-hmm. and i'll definitely allow a q a afterwards so anyone who signs up i'm happy to take your questions live and address them so it's really cool and i feel like honestly there's a lot of classes out there that have people teaching them who may not have the chops or the experience but i thought here's a way that people can have an opportunity to work with me a little bit yeah i mean if if you've listened this far into the podcast i mean you obviously know Hugh knows his stuff, and he's he's had experience in so many different aspects of comedy: he's stand up, late night, uh, you know, sketch comedy. I mean, it's yeah, I'm I'm sure this is a, a pretty amazing opportunity, and it's and it's on Zoom, so anywhere you you are in the country, you can do it. That's right. So thank you very much, and um, yeah. you just go to HughFink.com, my name, and one click you can sign up, and mm-hmm. um, I'm really looking forward to doing it. I think that because of the interest in it, I'll offer them, you know, every several weeks, hopefully I'll do it. But, um, yeah, I think it's going to be great. And my technique is not just to talk like I've been doing with you guys, which is fun, but I'll pull clips mm-hmm. from some of my work on Saturday Night Live, some other work that I admire, um, and show it on, on screen so we can sort of analyze it and um, deconstruct it. So I'll, I'll talk about like here specifically is something to learn from and why. So it's, so I like to think it's not informative just, but it's also super entertaining. Yeah. Well, I'm, I think it's, it's going to be great. I mean, anyone who's listening to this, who, who wants to get into sketch comedy. Yeah. Sign up for this. I mean, yeah, yeah absolutely. Go for it. You don't even have to. Yeah. Guys, let's sign up. You don't even have to put on pants. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, just angle that camera right, and yeah, you're good. And then, if this goes as well as I hope, then I'll, I will start wanting to go out post pandemic and do these lives, so I can come to Montclair, New Jersey. You guys can host it. That's right. Yeah, we would. That's we right. would love to have you here in New Jersey. We'll. We'll. Uh, yeah, we'll. We'll get. We'll get something going for you. Let's do it. Absolutely. I'm not opposed to that at all. No, it just the the pandemic was a good reason to sort of come up with this format since people creatives are stuck at home and wanting to be able to accomplish stuff i thought okay i can make this work on zoom so cool cool all right well i mean hugh is there anything else that you wanted to get to or that that we didn't get to talk about over the over the course of this yeah uh did Um, where can people find you on social media yeah you know it's weird i they can find me. I'm just not very active, but I'm Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. But I think, honestly, HughThinks.com is the best destination to find me because I'm going to be uploading some of my newest work on there and updates about my workshops. So that's the best place. Okay. And that's uh, H-U-G-H-F-I-N-K.com. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And you can always, by the way, any of your um, listeners who have any questions for me or want to reach out, I totally will respond directly. So you can reach out to me at hughfink.com and I'll respond. Cool. Cool. 
All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Hugh. I mean, this is a, a pleasure. I, I love it whenever we get to do like a deep dive into comedy and, you know, finding out how the sausage is made. This is, this has been great. Yeah. Thanks. You guys know your stuff. I really appreciate it. And um, it was a blast. So would love to come back on some time. And meanwhile, um, look forward to our paths crossing. All right. Yeah. That sounds fun. I'm sure you've got even more stories from your comedy career that you haven't gotten to. So we'll. Oh my gosh. Yes. We were, we were sticking with, you know, some, some of the, the first round of them this time, but there's plenty more. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that's something to look forward to. We'll have you back on as soon as we can. So awesome. I think that's going to be it. I mean, I think this was a really fun bonus episode. Darren, you got anything else to say? Uh, no, I think we're good, my friend. Okay. Then I think we're going to wrap this up. Uh, you know, please join us next week when we will have something else. But until then, nerds out. This has been a non-productive media presentation. Executive producer, Frank Hablawi. This program and many others like it on the Non-Productive Network is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Please share it, but ask before trying to change it or sell it. For more information, visit non-productive.com.